0: morning church it's good to see everybody this morning i see people returning from the holidays from cuba as well and they're here today that's awesome welcome that's good good to see everybody and those who are visiting us for the first time i really want to say it's good to have you here i know that uh, someone said there's going to be bad snow day today but thank god we don't have any snow and somebody must have fooled me i don't know anyway <laughs> we are here that's the most important thing Um, I still remember as I was preparing for my ordination as the minister of the gospel many moons ago, my cry was to echo with Apostle Paul and to say to my congregation, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. I soon realized that what a tall call that was. And I must confess that I have not reached that point in my life, and I don't think I will ever Until I'm called home that I could confidently say yes imitate me as I imitate Christ there were three examples in the Bible uh, examples of the Lord that I wanted to mimic in my position as a minister of the gospel please hold me accountable for that and even to this day I constantly remind myself of this the first one is the Lord's encounter with the little Zacchaeus on the sycamore tree, as Jesus passed through Jericho. The worst sinner he was, and Jesus did not cast him like everyone else did. Instead, Jesus said this, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. End of the story, we see in the scriptures that it says today salvation has come to this house because he is also a son of Abraham. So lesson for me is that every person that the Lord brings my way is precious. I'm not to condemn, nor to condone, but to confront with his love. And the second example that I find in the scriptures is when the scribes and the Pharisees brought to Jesus a woman caught in adultery. And the Lord's response was this, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. So Jesus forgave her, though she deserved death, and said, go and see no more. The lesson for me is to know that I am called to a ministry of reconciliation and restoration. No matter what their past is, to work with everyone to revive them in Christ. A new chapter can be opened in everyone's life, So not to give up on anyone. But the third subject, the third lesson that I've learned is what we are going to look at today. This is very powerful and convicting because the one who officiated me in my ordination service gave me a towel. I still cling on to this. Trust me, this is the one. This is the most treasured clothing or the item I have I have in my life and I only ask that on the day the Lord takes me home, please put this in my coffin and and send this along with me. The reason he gave me is to remind me constantly what my role is as a pastor or a shepherd of this flock to remind me to keep me humbled. Trust me, I was a proud big-headed bigot before I committed my life to the Lord. And my wife very graciously reminds me of that. The lesson for me is to serve with humility of love. Now David prayed, we see that in Psalm 84, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. But when I became a shepherd or the minister of the gospel, I prayed earnestly and intentionally, and I meant it with all my heart. I said, Lord, make me a doormat in the house of the Lord. Be careful what you ask the Lord to do. And I've seen how many times the Lord answered my prayer by humbling me to my knees as a doormat. So today's lesson is very powerful for those who genuinely want to serve the Lord. So pay close attention to the text please. Now let's go to the text. We are on our journey through the gospel of John and we are in chapter 13, a new chapter we are starting today. And we are going to only look at first nine verses, one to nine. Let us understand the context first. That's when you'll be able to come along with me as I go through the text. John 13 marks a turning point, actually, in the narrative of the gospel and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, Jesus' public ministry to the nation of Israel has come to an end with nation's complete and final rejection of him as Messiah. And we saw that in the scripture last Sunday in verse 37. But although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. Sad, isn't it? Pastor Dio spoke on this very convicting message last Sunday. And I really want to thank Pastor Dio for leading us through that text very carefully. One of the reasons that they refused to believe in Christ is that they were so seeking the praise of men. And we see that, we saw that last week in verse 43, for they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And again, at the very end of the service, Pastor Dio called out if any one of us would fall into that category. And I was so convicted of that exhortation, he drew our attention to Israel's unbelief. You remember that? And I see some have fallen into the class of what Pastor Dio called judicial blindness hit me so hard thank you pastor judicial blindness he further explained and I quote when people start to resist the light of the truth something begins to happen they will come to a place where they cannot believe anymore and he further said that God would harden the hearts of people who do not take the truth seriously over time and then he said listen church when you're unwilling to do, soon you'll be unable to do. Wow. What a powerful message that was. What you're unwilling to do, soon you'll be unable to do. It's a convicting truth. I was truly grieving church, thinking of some sheep that the Lord has brought under our fold. My appeal to you, and you know who you are, that you know that you are falling away, you know you have other priorities in life that trumps the things of God. Return to the Lord today before it's too late. He is a just God. Everybody say, just God. He is a just God wanting to have an intimate relationship with us. So today, if you hear His voice, please do not harden your heart because soon there will be a time the judicial blindness will not enable you to come to him. Church, you may be having a form of godliness. You may speak the right things. You may say amen on the Facebooks and maybe posting things of God. You may do charity. You may read devotions, but all these things are like filthy rags in the sight of God. If your heart is not in tune with God, you are under Judicial blindness so once again I appeal to you even before we dive into today's message The Lord says come now and let us reason together Though your sins are like scarlet. They shall be as white as snow Though they are like they are red like crimson. They shall be as wool So do not let this day pass by If you are still struggling and fighting with sins to speak to one of the pastors so one of the elders We'd love to take some time to pray with you. Let us get back to the text chosen for today. And and we are in the Passion Week now. Passion Week now. And on the first day of the Passion Week, Jesus had entered Jerusalem in triumph to the enthusiastic shouts of the people. You know that. Hosanna, Hosanna, they shouted. However, those people misunderstood his ministry and the message. The Passover session has arrived, and by Friday, that is, assuming that today is that Thursday, the Last Supper, tomorrow, the Lord would be utterly rejected, and he will be executed. Think about this, church, for a moment. Now, it is the day before Jesus' death, and rather than being preoccupied with thoughts of his death, and he's going to bear all our sins, and the glorification is totally consumed with his love, For those disciples. Wow. He knew that he would soon go to the cross to die for the sins of the world, but he's still concerned with the needs of the twelve men. His love is never impersonal. Shall we say the word impersonal? His love is never impersonal. That's the mystery of it. So in today's text, I see two aspects of his love. Just two simple aspects of love. Let me tell you what they are before we dive in. The first one that I see is is, is there's a definition of love. Definition of Jesus' love. That's what I see in verses 1 to 3. And the second part of it, we see there is a demonstration of Jesus' love. How he's demonstrating that love. First he's defining what that love is, and then he's demonstrating what that love is. So let's look at the first one, the definition of his love. And he defines what love is, what it means. Now, Apostle Apostle John speaks of the definition of love very clearly in this verse, verse number one. Please come along with me as I read this. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, now read that with me, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. The whole chapter happens around the dinner table with Jesus and his 12 disciples. Jesus knew his hour had come and he wanted to spend his last minutes near his disciples, teaching them an important lesson, an important message. The last message he's giving now. So John highlights that the Lord loved them to the end. John speaks of Jesus' love in that way that he loved them to the end. Wow. What does it really mean? Loving to an end. Jesus loved to the end. You know what a strange concept this is to many? Because most people love to an extent, not to an end. Most people love to an extent not to an end. Personally, I've experienced it, and I hate to say it, but that is the fact. As humans, it might sadden us. When you're you're high up on a corporate ladder, people love you, and they're willing to do anything you may want or ask, and they will always want to linger around you. But when you step down, you notice the distance people take away from you. Why? Because they benefit no more from your association. People's love is always conditioned. People love until the power or the fame runs out. And even in romantic relationships, most linger until the chemistry stops flowing, isn't it? Thank God for some of us the chemistry is still flowing. Or until someone more interesting comes along the way. King Solomon says it very clearly. And he says, Wealth attracts many friends, but even the closest friend of the poor person deserts them. Now we see that Jesus defines his unique love in such a way. And if you had to read verse number two to understand it, see who did Jesus love? Verse number two. And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Let me ask you, church. Would you love someone knowing that he would stab you at the back? You know very well he's going to stab you at the back. Would you love him? But we see that Jesus extended his love to Judas. So you may ask, pastor, maybe, maybe, Jesus may not have known that Judas would betray him. Maybe that's why he loved him. Had Jesus known this? He may not have. Who knows? So the question that we would ask is that did Jesus know that Judas would betray him? We studied that in John chapter 6. Let's look at the bring it up. Jesus answered them, John chapter 6, did I not choose you, talking about the twelve, and one of you is What? a devil. He spoke of whom? Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would do what? Betray him, being one of the twelve. So we do see here, church, that Jesus loved Judas, even though he was not one of his own. He washed Judas' feet before he went out to betray the Lord. Jesus had known all along that Judas would betray him in fulfillment of the scriptures. But listen, Judas was not the only one amongst the disciples. Who do we see? Who Jesus loved until the end. We have Judas, the one who betrayed him for 30 coins. We have Peter, the one who denied knowing him three times. We have Thomas, the one who doubted his resurrection, and we have all the 12 clowns, sorry, 12 disciples, the ones who fought among themselves for the title of most important, selfish, self-centered people. Despite all of that, Jesus loved them until the end. And he taught them an unforgettable lesson of this kind of love. By washing their feet, We'll study that later. But here's what the, the Lord says. And again, I'm going, just going to bring it up. Verse, uh, Chapter 13, verse 34. We'll look at it later. A new commandment I give you. Why, is, why did he do that? That you love one another. How? As I have loved you, that you also love one another. He's defining what love is. He's showing what love is to the twelve. This kind of love has nothing to do with sentimentalism. It has nothing to do with good manners filled with hypocrisy. It has nothing to do with sweet words with intention of impressing others. It's a genuine love from the heart. The love that Jesus expects from us, a love shown through service towards others, considering them greater than ourselves, even if they are not. Think about this, church. Think about this for a moment. If only couples would capture and practice this kind of love, the kind of love that loves until the end, they wouldn't get divorced. They wouldn't battle it out, rip out each other's hearts, so their children's through selfish attitudes. Be honest, church. How many times have we failed to practice this love? How many times would we rather do anything but serve that annoying, petty person who bothers us like a pebble in our shoes. We all have people like that in our lives. I hear somebody saying that, yeah, I have it in my house. I'm just kidding. But how many times do we consider ourselves greater and more important than others? When all people are committed, first of all, to themselves, only relationships crumble, they fall down. And that is just what is happening as friendships, marriages, families, and even churches fall apart. So Jesus loved the ones who does not deserve his love. It is easy to love those who love you. But the definition of his love is this. Love the undeserving. Love when they hurt you. Love when they stab you. Love when they betray you. Love when they cast doubt at you. So the life application is that think of one person, church, that you just cannot love. Maybe it's your workmate or your neighbor or your in-laws or your outlaws, your siblings, your spouse, even your children. You know, one of the... uh, theologians I loved is Chuck Missler. He was a businessman who came, became a theologian. They had a, he had an encounter with one of his friends who betrayed him very badly. And the wife wrote and said, you know, as a family, we could not love this person, but we know that we have been called to love. So she went on her knees and she cried out and said, Lord, I know that you love this person, though I don't. And she said, may your love flow through me. May your love flow through me. And earlier, Keith was quoting in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrated his love toward us. How? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So the life application, when was the last time you called a person in the shut-in? Someone who is lonely, someone who is not cared for by others. When was the last time you reached out to Somebody. Not only the ones who are hurting you, but the ones who are lost. Jesus' action here shows that both how he loved us when we were unworthy of that love and how we can and we should love others may not be worthy of it. So here's the first lesson. As I said, the definition of love, love the undeserved. It starts here, church within the four walls of this church. I want each one of you to come out of your Kumbaya group. Come out of it. At the end of the service, reach out to someone that you don't usually talk to. Reach out to somebody within the four walls of this church. Look for the one who is seated by himself or by herself. Reach out. See how you can pour your love on them. So we looked at the definition of his love. Now we look at how this is demonstrated, the demonstration of his love. Let's move on to verses 3 to 5. Jesus, knowing that Father had given all things into his hands and, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After they poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So we need to first understand the foot washing concept of it. At the entrance of every Jewish home was a large pot of water to wash dirty feet. Normally foot washing was the duty of the lowliest slave. When guests come, he had to go to the door and wash their feet. It was not a pleasant task, but that was the most miserable duty, but only slaves performed it. Even the disciples of rabbis were not to wash the feet of their masters. That was a unique task for the slaves. There are no examples in the ancient literature of a superior washing the feet of an inferior. So now as Jesus and his disciples all arrived in the upper room, they found that there, were, there was no servant, no slave to wash their feet. So who is going to wash their feet? You wonder why can't the disciples wash each other's feet? Why couldn't they? And why didn't they? We need to understand the mindset of these disciples. So in order to understand that, we need to go to the synoptic Gospels and see what is happening around that period of time. Look at this in Matthew chapter 20, what is going on, just around the same time. This is only days before Jesus had said to the disciples, Now, whoever desires to come great, become great among you, let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Then Jesus went on to say, you know, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. If only they had given mind and heart to the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the twelve disciples would have washed the other's feet. They would have mutually shared the task. It could have been a beautiful thing, but it never occurred, church, because of their selfishness. A parallel passage we see in Luke chapter twenty-two. It gives us an idea and how selfish these disciples were, and what they were thinking in that evening. Look at this verse twenty, chapter twenty-two, verse twenty-four. Now there was also a dispute among them, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. Wow, interesting, isn't it? You would expect the disciples to be humble. Who is the greatest? Then the Lord rebuked them and said, He who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. What a sickening picture this is. They were bickering about who was the greatest. No one is going to get down to, to the ground to wash the feet of the disciples or to the Lord. The basin was there, the towel was there, and everything was rare, but no one moved to wash Jesus' or others' feet. It's easy to love the human race in the abstract. I love you. I care for you. Are you prepared to wash the feet? But when it comes to loving specific, irritating people that you can't avoid, the process becomes a lot more difficult. But Jesus demonstrated his love in a unique way. See how John describes this in verse number 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going to God. What do you take from this passage? Just by the first phrase, the Father had given all things into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Apostle John shows us Jesus' authority over all heaven and all earth. Listen, church, the hands that control the universe. Including the angelic host and everybody, and humbly washed the dirty feet of the 12 undeserving disciples. And so the disciples would have been shocked to have their teacher and the Lord wash their feet. Apparently, they were so shocked that they stay stunned, silence until Jesus came to Peter. That's what you're seeing in this passage. Peter probably verbalized the thoughts that the others had been afraid to say when he protested. Look at what Peter said in, in, chapter, in verse number 8. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. But Jesus will go on to explain later on, we are going to look at it maybe next, next Sunday, is in verse 15 he says, for I have given you an example that you should do as I have done you. Here's an example, you want to imitate me, imitate this. He did this to give us an example how we should humbly serve others. So this demonstration of his love in this manner of humility has four practical aspects which I want to leave with you. Number one, humility recognizes that no task is beneath us to do for Christ's sake. Humility recognizes that no task is beneath us to do for Christ's sake. When it comes to kingdom's work, there is no task that is beneath us to do for Christ. If Jesus can stoop down to wash the feet of the disciples, what task can be beneath us to do for Christ's sake? I constantly take my eyes on this. I look at this over and over again and tell myself, There is no task that's beneath. If you are a true servant of God, before you seek to be in the limelight, drawing the focus of the public, be focused on doing the menial tasks that no one wants to touch. I still remember I once visited an elderly lady in her, in her apartment and I wanted to encourage her in the Lord. She was going through some difficult times and I, as I opened the door to enter in the stench of unwashed dishes and food in the sink and on her bed made me sick. There was no one to help and the PSW has already left. What do you think I should do first? Go and open the scriptures and encourage her in the, in the Lord? I was so convicted that before I could talk to her and pray with her, I had to clean up the dishes and the tables. It was not easy. I could have said I didn't sign up for that. But that is what we are called to do. If in the church you have to clean up the washrooms and pick up the trash, do it unto the Lord. Never think that that a task is beneath your dignity or calling this is a sign of a true servant of God who welcome to the ministry church so the first lesson we learn from this demonstration of Christ's love is that no task is beneath to do for Christ's sake the second lesson that we learn is that humility requires thinking of others more highly than of yourself I'm all taking from this passage church note this, the disciples did not want to wash the feet of the other disciples because they were arguing about who is the greatest but Jesus rebuked them and pointed out that seeking dominance and prominence over one another is the way of the world Jesus said to them in Luke 26, 22-26 we see this, but you are not to be like that, like the world instead the greatest among you should be like what the youngest and the one who rules like what the one who serves. So before I committed my life entirely to Christ, I had this problem. I told you that earlier, and I'm not ashamed to admit it, I always thought I was superior to everyone around me. I thought I was George Bush. Because I had everything coming my way, and my, uh, the way I wanted, but when the Lord knocked me down, and I thank God for that, Crumbled me, crushed me on my road to Damascus, my life changed. He broke me and and he wants to become a servant to mimic after him. I'm still learning to consider others highly than me. It's difficult. It's challenging. We see a great example in the church in Philippi, and there were two ladies. In the church in Philippi, we were having a dispute, an argument. Thank God it was not two men, it was two ladies who were fighting. Now Paul wrote to the church this way. Let nothing be done through what? Selfish ambition or conceit. But in what? Lowliness of mind, let each esteem each esteem others what? Better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for what the interest of others. And he didn't stop there. What did he? Go, he goes on to talks about whom? Christ. He cited the example of Christ, who willingly took on the form of a servant and went to the cross for our sakes. You know, so many quarrels in the church and in our homes would evaporate if we would, with humility and mind, regard the other person as more important than ourselves. I'm going to ask you to do something. Turn to the person sitting next to you and say, you are more important than me. Can you do that? Please hold them accountable for that. Okay, okay. Now, I I know, I know, I know. Don't go to town with that. Okay, all right. I got it. I got it. Okay. So the second lesson that we learn here, church, is that consider others more highly than you. And the third lesson that we learn in the humility requires getting your focus off your rights and your needs and onto the other's needs. That's what they're learning here. If you look at the verse number three, we looked at earlier, as the eternal Son of God to whom Father had given all things into his hand, Jesus certainly had the right for the disciples to wash his feet. He could have commanded them, come and wash my feet. But I'm sure that Jesus' feet were as dirty as others as well. But he wasn't focused on his needs or his rights, but rather on the others. Again, church, how many quarrels in our homes at church and would stop if we would take our eyes off ourselves and our rights and our needs and instead think of the other person's needs? In order for you to do that, you need to know the other person. You need to make time for the other person. You need to make them feel comfortable and important by listening to them. You know, one thing I hate is when people come and say, how are you, and just vanish, before I could give an answer. I want to tell you all the problem I'm having. Nobody wants to listen to me. We must give our ear to the others. If every husband and every wife and every child can do that, your home becomes a happy, happy home. If every believer can do that, you become a powerful testimony for his glory. So that's the third lesson that we learn. Take your eyes off your rights and your needs and focus on the others. And the last lesson that we learn is so powerful. So powerful. I was convicted. It's about Peter's reaction to Jesus' washing of the feet. Let me tell you what the lesson is first and then we can go through that. Humility requires receiving, not just giving. Humility requires receiving, not just giving. Listen, church, it's easy to serve or to give to those in need. Hear me out. Out of pride. Out of pride. As you read John's narrative in John chapter 13, one would think that it is Peter's humility his own sense of unworthiness before Jesus that caused him to say no to the Lord washing his feet. That's what you would assume. Oh, what a humble man he was. Be careful, but when you do a thorough study, it would reveal it did not stem from humility, but from pride. But from pride. It is really the expression of intense personal pride So in order to understand that you need to understand this person Peter very well. it embarrassed him to think that Jesus washing his feet. If Jesus is to wash Peters uh, wash Peter's feet in Peter's mind that implies that his feet were dirty and that needs washing. Not all pride is chest thumping and loudmouth church. Some prides, pride hides behind false humility. Let me repeat that. Some pride hides behind false humility. We act the part of humility and then take pride in our fine performance. We would know the character of Peter as we read through the text, as I said. In Luke, a narrative gives a clear picture. Read Luke chapter 22. We don't have time to go into that in detail. But just after the Last Supper, The disciples argue about greatness. Which of them would be considered the greatest? I, I mentioned that already. The Lord rebuked them. Now Judas was not the only apostle about whom Jesus had been concerned. On the night of this last supper. You would expect Jesus to focus only on Judas. But no, but all of them had demonstrated arrogance and pride toward one another and with the people they had been called to serve, finally Jesus looked into the eyes of the man he considered to be very center of the problem, Peter. And in verse 21 of chapter 22, Luke, he says this, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But listen to what Peter said in response, verse number 33, he said, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. To the Lord, he's saying, Lord, I am with you. I'm with you. And in Matthew's narrative, you see Peter's response as this, Peter answered and said to them, even if all made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. And then he says this, boy, he can keep his mouth shut. I don't know why he talks. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Wow. Peter. We have a lot of Peters today. Peter. It's like Peter saying, no way, Lord, Peter, uh, Lord, listen, don't you remember you call me the rock? I don't care if I have to die, I'll never disown you. Peter was actually offended by Jesus' action because he knows that if he were a teacher, he would consider stooping to wash someone's feet because it would be beneath him. If Jesus could do that, then when I'm going to teach, I have to wash the feet of the others as well now. This is a rebuke to self-sufficiency. This is a revelation of the sinful pride of our own hearts, church, which often cloaks itself with the guise of humility when we are really insisting on our self-sufficiency. There's a great example I read, and I I was laughing at this. A man was nominated to the position in the church, and he got up in what appeared to be a great humility and said, I'm not worthy for this position. Hear me out. I have a terrible temper and I'm very undependable. Then he sat down. Now that's a sense of pride expressed in a very humble form. So without him, to his surprise, another person stood up and said, he said said this, I second everything he just said. He has a terrible temper, and you can never count on him to keep his word. He is right. He is not worthy. So this man got so angry. How dare you say such a terrible thing about me? Pride has a way of staying hidden, even from us. Typically, prideful people think they are among God's most humble children. If this describes the attitude of your heart, it may be time to get the opinion of another person. On the current status of your pride, perhaps your spouse, your boss, your co-worker, your pastor, your best friend or your children, they will tell you the truth. Trust me, they won't mince their words. Pride, however, is not just a normal little sin. It's the very essence, it is one of the most destructive sins a person can ever commit. It is destructive because it blinds people to the counsel and help they need in their walk with God. Even worse is the fact that pride produces a deceptive confidence that not only keeps these individuals from seeking the help of people, but also it will keep them away from God. I know it all. I was like that, trust me. I know it all. Many people are offended by the gospel and don't see the need Because they are proud of their good works. They are proud of all that they do for others and they view themselves as having clean feet. It would embarrass them to admit that their feet are dirty and that Jesus needs to wash them. But to receive the gospel, you have got to recognize that your feet are filthy. That no one gets to heaven by washing your own feet. Jesus has to do it. That's the only way to heaven. So as I bring this message to a close. There are two things that we looked at. Number one is the definition of Jesus' love. We are called to love the undeserved. I want you to think about that person, one person that you are not able to love, that you are not reaching out. Make a decision today. God, you have loved me. While I was still a sinner, while I was still doing all the dirty things, you love me. Help me to love this person. Second, how are I going to demonstrate that love? Always know that no task is beneath you. For Christ's sake. Remember, consider others more highly than yourself. Others must be greater than you. Place others', others rights before you. It's not about yourself, not about I, me, and myself. It's about others. And lastly, the most important thing is to abandon false pretense of humility. Shall we pray? And ask you to stand if you don't mind. Let's keep our eyes closed, heads bowed. Let's reflect ourselves and I see how we are demonstrating our love to others. Having known how Christ has loved us, has given us a definition of love, consider the areas where you're failing. How many of you among you here who are Standing here, you think that you need that help, that God must help you to love that person in your life. Just gently slip your hands up, not for, not for others to see, but for the Lord to see it, that you need. Thank you. Thank you. Make a decision today that you're going to demonstrate Jesus' love by thinking that there is no task that beneath us, beneath me, to do for Christ's sake to consider others more highly than myself, to place others' rights and needs before mine, but most importantly, to abandon the false pretense of humility. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you have seen our hearts and the struggles that we go through. Father, there is no match. There is no way that we can come close to what you have demonstrated. But all of us here, we want to say with Apostle Paul to tell others, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And fully knowing that it is a very difficult task. But that is our goal, O God. That is what we want. We want to imitate you. So we pray in Jesus' name that the Spirit of the Lord will guide us and direct us and lead us. And every time that we are falling or failing, that you would, Father, you would minister to us, you would nudge us and you would put us in the right path. So we commit our lives to you this morning, that when others see us, they'll be able to say that we are imitating Christ and Christ alone. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.